Hi, I'm Ellen Pompeo, and this is Tell Me. On this episode of Tell Me, I am talking to Kara Swisher, the host of two of my favorite podcasts, Pivot and Sway. Swisher is an American journalist described by Newsweek as Silicon Valley's most powerful tech journalist. Kara was nice enough to talk to us today despite having a cold and almost having laryngitis. We talk about all things tech and Hollywood and how tech impacts Hollywood. We had a great conversation, and I hope you enjoy this episode of Tell Me. Thanks for being here. No problem. I'm sorry about my voice. Listen, I'm a doctor. I deal with sick people all day long, Kara. It's fine. I hear that. What's the diagnosis? I'm going to go into a coma in a minute. <laughs> Please don't. Don't do that. That's what would happen in the plot of Grey's Anatomy. It's true. This is what happens when you have a toddler. Remember the cold? <laughs> Remember that? So I just started listening to Pivot. I'm a big fan of Sway. How long have you been doing Pivot? Uh, about uh, four years. Four years. It's a very different podcast. Yeah, very different podcast. So I've only listened to two episodes of Pivot so far. Yeah. So it's more focused on big tech, whereas Sway, you have such a nice balance, I find. Yeah, absolutely. It's about tech and business, really, and media and things like that, Hollywood. A lot about Hollywood lately because of streaming. But we try to be funny. It's a very funny podcast. We're kind of characters with each other. Scott is kind of the, I guess, the typical unwoke man. And I'm the sort of lesbian from San Francisco who smacks him upside the head all the time. But what's really nice about it is there's not a lot of room these days for disagreement that's cordial and funny. Everybody's on high alert because of Twitter or social media. It's a very difficult time. And I think when people disagree in a funny and interesting way, it's very appealing, especially when they give insights to business or media or the confusion that's happening all around us. I agree with you. And it's one of the reasons I say that I wanted to do this podcast. I'm a pretty opinionated person myself. I noticed. <laughs> my path is definitely to try to, you know, mitigate some of my passion and yeah. calm down and be more open-minded and listen more and try to look at things from other people's point of view. I mean, you do a really good job of that, I have to say. Even when you interview, like, who was it? Jason Miller, President Trump's communications person. Yes, that interview was amazing. And, you know, whatever disdain you have. A lot. You're really able to maintain this just very intelligent line of questioning. Have you always been that tempered or have you learned that skill? I have a lot of temper and I have a lot of opinions. I'm quite opinionated on Twitter. I think one of the reasons people like that come on my show, whether it's the head of Parler, who did get into a bit of trouble afterwards, he got fired and deplatformed essentially, is because I think even if I disagree with people, I'm willing to have a tough conversation with them without being snarky and without being gotcha. I don't agree with them, though. I mean, I did a whole interview with Anthony Scaramucci where I'm like, everything you're saying is idiotic, and let me explain why. But I did it with, I think, a kind of respect in that I didn't call him stupid. I don't know how else to put it. I said, here's why I don't agree with you. Here's my point of view. Here's where I think you're wrong. Here's where your facts are wrong. And I think that's what's, I don't back away from having an opinion. And I think a lot of interviewers pretend that they're, I hate to use the term fair and balanced, but they're not. They bring their whole lives to their interviews. And so it's very clear. I'm a mother of a lot of children. I'm gay. I'm from San Francisco and all that brings to it. But at the same time, don't assume you know me as well as you do. I may have different points of view. And I think that's, again, social media, especially Twitter, Facebook, 
Cable news, especially, reduces us all to cartoon characters. I know you suffer that. When you say something, you have a point of view, and everybody jumps upon it and picks it apart. When that's not the reality of what you're saying, you're trying to be more substantive. You're trying to say something more complex, and it gets reduced into these boxes that are impossible to get out of. It's true. Everything you said is so accurate. And that being said, I think that makes you definitely be aware to be more thoughtful before you say things. I suppose. Lessons are not often learned the easy way. Yeah. I'm sure you tell your children, I tell my children. Mm -hmm. Lessons are hard to learn, but much better to learn a lesson than to not learn a lesson. Absolutely. I was listening to Pivot last night and you were talking about the number of journalists has reduced greatly, but then there's more PR people. Oh, yeah. There's triple the amount of PR people, right? And half the amount of journalists that we have. And this is a direct result of social media and it's impact on our society. It's okay when you're promoting a show, a TV show like yours. That's fine to PR people. We all get that trade. But when you have powerful tech companies like Facebook, for example, they have more PR people than the FTC has lawyers. That's crazy, you know, as lawyers or staffers and funding. And so you realize that it's going to be the spin. It eventually wins even if it's inaccurate, no matter how many reporters do really good pieces, because it creates a level of noise on critically important issues, like this recent issue of toxicity for teen girls on Instagram, for example. Because Facebook's been saying, no, those studies aren't right. And they play on the instinct of reporters to try to be fair. And so when it's very clear they themselves have that research that shows that, meanwhile, they've been saying the opposite in public because they have so many PR people, that's a real cost, you know, versus just someone trying to promote a song or a show or whatever. Yeah. Do you think Facebook is outdated or is it still as relevant as it always was? Well, it owns a lot of things. It owns Instagram and owns Oculus and owns WhatsApp. No, it's never been bigger. Across the world, it is how most people get their news. And therefore, it's really important that they understand that it may not be promoting news that's accurate. And so I think the billions and billions of people that use it daily for things that you don't realize they're using it for makes them quite dangerous, especially when they're not managing the platform the way they need to. Just look at vaccine misinformation across the board. Most of it's from Facebook. And that does real damage to how many people get vaccinated, where people get their information. It used to be from three broadcast networks. Now it's Facebook, which doesn't do any vetting or does some. And that's a real issue because then people have a really poor information diet. Yeah, the conversation on Pivot that I listened to last night about the dinner between Zuckerberg, Jared Kushner, Trump at the White House, that was a great conversation. Yeah, yeah, because look, every company's trying to take advantage. Look, Hollywood companies do it, banks do it, pharmaceutical companies do it. But this is about more than that because, you know, there's definite damage from opiates, damage from a financial crisis. But this goes to our minds and what people know and how they know it. And when facts become arguable, that's a real problem. I mean, it just goes to the heart of how we define everything. And it's one thing to have a fictionalized whatever that you're watching at the movies. We all know a man can't get in an iron suit and fly, right? Mm-hmm. We get that. We know the trade. But when there's questions about the election or it creates distrust, it's a much different thing because then it really starts to chip away at the way we live. Look, just now in Arizona, the results by the very bad counters is that the results were right. So the people that Trump hired to overturn the Arizona election are even saying the election results are fine. 
but it's done a damage because it's created this election lie that gets everywhere. And it eventually leads to things like January 6th or a lot of this unrest. Did you watch the QAnon documentary? I certainly did. You know, the first two episodes, my husband and I looked at each other and said, what are we doing? Like, we don't even want to watch this. It feels like you're doing something wrong by watching it. It just feels so gross. And someone had said to me, you know, just get through it. Someone had prefaced yeah. it by saying, watch it. And in the first two episodes, you're going to feel a little uneasy, but get through it because yeah. it gets better. And I found it so interesting how that started was just to really target this very specific group of people, these loners mm -hmm. who sort of live in a fictional world. But it's not fictional to them. That's the problem. They're living in the real world with those points of view. Right. And so, you know, it iterates over and over again, whether it's election lies, vaccine misinformation. It's not unlike opiates. It's not unlike gambling. The problem is a lot of these tech tools are addictive, are actually addictive. And the tech companies tend to like, oh, no, it's not. You can put it down. You can't put it down. And you also need to use it for work. You need to use it for daily life. Everything is now integrated with tech. And so especially now during the pandemic, it's no accident that most of the tech companies are worth three times more than they were at the beginning of the pandemic. The pandemic's been very, very good to tech because it's there with the answers we need. Well, one of the most hysterical points of view, I feel like, on the vaccine is the chip, right? The chip argument. Yeah. Bill Gates. Yeah. I asked him about that. Which is absurd. Yeah. But it's like you're walking around holding a chip. Yes. Many. You slept with your chip. You woke up and looked at your chip. Your phone <laughs> is not a chip, but the vaccine yes. is a chip. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was just like, okay. You know, all these conspiracy theories are just so irrational. Well, some of them are insane. The one I started with many years ago was when I started to really pay attention to this. I have a lot of conservative relatives. And they were telling me that Hillary Clinton was a lizard. And I was like, what? I know her. She's not a lizard. It's under her skin. I was like, what are you talking about? She, what do you want me to poke her? I, you know, because I know, they know I know her. And I wrote Facebook. I'm like, what are these stories doing here? She's not a lizard. And they're like, well, people post whatever they want. I said, but arguably she's not a lizard. Why are you doing that? Why are you allowing that? It was, of course, done by malevolent players trying to bring her down. Now, she had enough issues on her own that we can argue about her any way you want. But it shouldn't be that we start with that she's a lizard or anything else. And that's where it starts to dehumanize people in ways that make it very easy to foment hate towards people. I agree. What do you think it is about Zuckerberg? What do you think happened to him? Or is he... <laughs> he's very nice. Why do you think he's so ambivalent about these specific things when he does have the power yeah. to be able to affect massive change across all of these platforms and really be a leader in this space. And at some point, you have enough money, you have enough power. They don't, though, Ellen. It's not enough, you think? Well, I always say they're so poor, all they have is money. So one of the things I think it's very hard to understand, but you said it yourself, one person shouldn't have this much power, right? It's not like we're living in the Roman Empire. There's not an emperor. And in fact, Augustus Caesar is Mark Zuckerberg's hero. People don't realize that. The one who brought together was the ultimate emperor of all time. And one of the things that's interesting about that is one of the most powerful people in the world cannot be fired, cannot be taken out of office, cannot be removed, and has unlimited power to make a lot of determinations about society that he is incapable of doing. Anyone's incapable. You can say what you want about Trump or Biden, but they can be taken out of office, right? They can be. In fact, Trump was. But this is someone who is unaccountable, unfireable, and with unlimited power. To me, that's historically always been a problem. I would agree with you. 
I think the young people call that small dick energy. <laughs> I don't know about that. I don't have that. <laughs> I'm a reporter, but not that good a reporter. Yeah, and he has a wife. She's lovely, yeah. You know, you wonder what she thinks about all this. Well, one of the things that's interesting is, I tend to stick to people he works with, is that there's a lot of people around him, and what happens, we were on a Twitter spaces last night talking about this with the author of the Facebook series in the Wall Street Journal and an author of a book about Facebook who's a New York Times reporter. And one of the problems is there's so many people around him that have a groupthink. I'm sure you've seen this in any kind of way, that there's a groupthink at the top of things. And when everybody is dependent on you for their money and their job, they tend to violently agree with you on whatever. And I'm sure as a celebrity, you get this too. You want an honest opinion and you get a lot of people licking you up and down, right? Absolutely. Because they want something. And so when you have a groupthink, everyone's just trying to get ahead of what he wants versus what might be right. And so any disagreement, even if it's present, gets pushed down in ways that aren't good. I've had so many encounters with Mark where I disagree with him, and I think he's shocked. He's like, well, everyone else doesn't agree. I said, everyone else is paid by you. I'm not. And it's really interesting how you get into that. A lot of people in Silicon Valley are like this. They're very wealthy. They're very much in a bubble. It's not unlike Hollywood people, but it's quantumly more because they're so much richer. And then they get violently agreed with all the time. What was the book when Obama was elected and he started putting together his cabinet? It was Team of Rivals? That was about Lincoln. Yeah, that was about Lincoln. But didn't Obama say... He wanted that. Yeah, that he wanted to sort of form his cabinet in the same kind of way and come yep. up with a table to sit with of people who would question him, who would argue with him, who would present different points of view. Yeah. And I think that that is the most valuable thing. It's hard. Diversity is very hard. And what's happened, it's become so politicized, it's whether it's critical race theory or whatever, it's not seen as a positive when it's completely a positive. And I think that's what's happened in these reductive atmospheres. Like my mom watches Fox and I wrote a piece about her calling COVID the flu at the beginning. My brother's a doctor. We were like, no, no, you need to not go out. She's like, it's just like the flu. It's fine. Because she was getting bad information from Fox News in this case. And so one of the things that I recently was arguing with her about was critical race theory. And I said, do you actually know what it is? And she thought I was being rude. And she's like, you're just trying to make me feel stupid. I said, I don't think you actually know what it is. Like, I need you to define it for me. It's a very easy question. She couldn't define it. And then I said, how often do they do it in school, in grammar school and middle school and high school? And she goes, well, they need to take it out of there. And I said, it's not in those schools. It's in college. Like, it was so fascinating to understand how bad information can seep into someone's psyche and then give them bad signals. And it does a disservice to my mom. It does a disservice to all these people when they're getting bad information and then the elite who are trying to correct it make them feel stupid. Now, I wasn't trying to make my mom feel stupid, but the fact of the matter is she's operating in a poor information area and therefore she's going to make bad decisions. Yeah, so I think curiosity of thought. We can't say enough about yeah. that, about being mm -hmm. curious and want to listen to different people's opinions. Absolutely. Because people just don't. They're happy to just get their information in the single stream as diluted or as condensed as they possibly can. They don't have to really think or make opinions. They can just listen to what is being said to them and they're told how to think and they're okay with that because everyone is sort of tired, right? Yeah. There's so much information to discern. Yes. There's so much to go through. And if some platform like Fox News makes it just very simple, this is what you should think. This is what it is. They're so emphatic. 
with yeah. the way they spout their nonsense, that it's very easy to say, okay, well, she's really passionate about this, so it must be true. And then now I can just take a nap. It does make it easy to just take their point of view. It's also based on fear. A lot of the stuff online is that way too. It's based on fear and repetition. You know, I'm not to pick on my mom, but I did an interview with Hillary Clinton and she called me up. She hadn't heard it. And she said, can you believe what Hillary Clinton just said about people like me? And I said, what? And she repeated something from my interview that was completely mangled. And I said, that's not what she said, actually. And she goes, oh, no, she said it. I said, no, no, it was my interview. That's not what she said. She said this. She goes, well, that's your opinion. I go, but it was my interview. Like, it was crazy. I was like, are you kidding me? I felt like I was in 1984, the book, or you know, any of those books. And I was like, she talked to me. She said it to your daughter. I'm telling you what she said. And you still have a different point of view. That's how it works at the brain cell, you know, in some way. Yeah, it's really interesting. I speak to a lot of psychologists on here. I talked to Adam Grant a couple of weeks ago. He's great. And I spoke to Gabrielle Bluestone, who wrote a book called Hype. Yeah, he's a great book. Yeah, yeah. And it's so interesting how at the cellular level, we're just deciding that this information is the information we should get, and that's enough. But then again, at the same time, people who are okay with these points of view don't have the energy to actually look into it and see if there's a different point of view. But you do have the energy to defend mm -hmm. this sort of completely incorrect point of view that was presented to you that you're taking as fact. You have the energy to defend that, but you don't have the energy to sort of look into it and see if that's really what she said. But that's easier. It's an answer, right? One of the things that I spend a lot of time on, instead of just dunking on people, which I'm quite good at. You are. Yeah. Is understanding why, you know, you have kids. I have a lot of kids. What is it actually about? Like my son was mad at me the other day on something minor. I'm like, what's actually going on here? And I realized I was going away for a couple of days, something he wanted to go to. I have a conference down in Los Angeles called the Code Conference, and he's gone every year. And now he can't because he's in high school and he's got to go to class. And he was mad. He was mad about something small, about a meal, about a piece of food. And it took me a minute to realize what the actual thing was. And I think the thing that works about Trumpism, for example, is it gives them people answers to their questions about their own inadequacies or their own fears or their own questions about their own lives. And if you can provide someone with an easy answer and someone to blame, and if you can't get to the heart of what's happening with these people, which is why when you begin talking, I want to hear what they're saying to me because I want to understand why they're behaving that way behind the immediate. And that's really difficult. That's interesting because last week I had close contact with someone who tested positive for COVID. So I had to quarantine and I wasn't able to do my scenes on the show. So I had to do everything this week. So yeah. I have a very nice schedule on the show. I'm very lucky and I'm able to sort of have a very condensed schedule so that I can be home half the time and take care of my mm -hmm. kids. And this week I wasn't able to do that. And my daughter had, my oldest is 12 and she had an especially hard time this week. And I thought it was about a million different things, but it was the same type of thing. When I actually got home, she would text me to school and say, you know, this isn't working and this isn't working. And I forgot my homework. And she actually didn't. She had her homework. Yeah. And everything was fine. But, you know, I wasn't around. Yeah. And she was upset about that. So I want to pivot a little bit because I heard something last night on Pivot. So you said you're having another baby. Congratulations. Yes. Yes. And I want to ask you about that because... I have three kids. How many kids do you have? Three, right? Or four? I will have four, yeah. Is your wife much younger than you? And can we talk a bit about your decision to have a child at this age? Yeah. I applaud it. I think it's fantastic. And I think about it often. It's great. 
you should have more kids. <laughs> Can you walk me through what that process was like for sure. you? Because I'm really fascinated by it. So I'm gay. And many, many years ago, 20 years ago, actually, and my son is sleeping downstairs in the house he grew up in, in San Francisco. I really always wanted to be pregnant. And I also always wanted to have lots of kids. And at the time I came out, that was not possible. You couldn't get married. Having children was impossible. You certainly couldn't adopt. But the idea of actually having children was not something many people did. Some people did, but it was rare. It was more rare than it should have been. And I thought I would be a good parent. And so I got married at a time when gay people weren't getting married, an actual wedding. This was before it was legal. And we had kids. I got pregnant the first time using a sperm donor. And my ex-wife, who's now my ex-wife, I got along with very well, and had the other kid, same donor. So we raised our kids here in San Francisco, and then we eventually got a divorce. She actually worked for President Obama as the chief technology officer of the United States. Um, we loved it, having kids. And I always thought I should have had another one and then just didn't. You know how that goes, right? You're like, oh, you know, I love being pregnant. I thought it was great. And by the time I changed my mind on it, I was too old, right? I was too difficult to get pregnant. Not that some people who are older don't get pregnant, but when you're older and have kids, it's a journey for your yes, body and everything. I'm well aware. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, you're like, oh my God, did I do that to my body? And I loved my boys. They're amazing. And I always joke that lesbians should raise all the boys because they're sensitive and manly at the same time. And so I got divorced and then I met someone who was about 15 years younger than me and she wanted kids. She was just over 40 and I was working towards doing that by herself. She couldn't believe it. I was like, yeah, go right ahead. More kids. Sounds great. And so, you know, a lot of people doubt they can get pregnant. I, of course, had a lot of information about getting pregnant because I did it at a time when it was a little harder. And so she got pregnant right away, right away. Had this beautiful daughter, which I've always wanted to have a daughter. And we have a great family. And so my boys have a great relationship with her. I was a little worried about that, but they were great. During the pandemic, it's been a real blessing. I'm not religious, but it's been a blessing to have her around and have her brothers there and things like that. And then um, she wanted another child. And I said, fine, I'm going to be the oldest parent on the playground and I'll be ancient. You'll have to wheel me into high school graduation, but that's fine. So she's due in uh, December with a boy. And so I'll have three boys and one girl. And what's really great is everyone's sort of like, are you kidding me? Are you crazy? I think I have a very significant career, I would say. But having kids has been the most important thing I've done. It's really wonderful. And I think it's very important not to get political, but as a gay person, to show what families are and what they can be and how different they are and to lead by example. I had a very right-wing person get in touch with me because I tend to be open-minded to talk to them. And they said, liberals don't believe in the future. And I said, I have four children. I believe in the future. You think I don't believe in the future? Because they're like, they don't have kids. They don't do this. I said, welcome to my world. I have kids. I have to believe in the future. And we had a great conversation about climate change, which I'm spending a lot of time interviewing people about. So I think it's just really important in these times to think very hard about what families are and what kind of families you have, you know, whether they're born to you or they're adopted or you create them yourself. And, you know, just thinking about television, some of the greatest families have been depicted on television, right? Like mm -hmm. think about the Mary Tyler Moore group of people. I'm thinking about something a million years ago. All in the family. Most television shows are about formed families, if you think about it, and how you come together and support each other or not. 
It's true. I agree with everything you said, which is a problem of mine. I agree with everything Kara Swisher says all the time. (laughs) It's a good idea. It's so true. And I think that, you know, men do it all the time, right? Men have Hollywood actors have two and three wives, four wives, five wives. I do not have five wives. I'm not Alec Baldwin either. So let's just be clear. Yeah. Like have kids into their 60s, their 70s and 80s. And I don't know that anyone questions it. Well, lesbians can do it. You see, here's the thing. Only Hollywood actors, lesbians and evangelicals are having lots of children. (laughs) You said that on Pivot. Listen to last night. It's so true. But it is so important, I think, for the reason you stated, which is to continue the narrative that families look a million different ways. And they do. Right. I have three children. One of them I carried myself. And then after that, had some problems. And so the Mm -hmm. other two I had to have by way of surrogate. Because, Mm -hmm. of course, in my 40s, it's considered a geriatric pregnancy, right? It is. Do you love that name, that word? Uh, Oh, amazing. It's sexy. They just said it to my wife. They said, do you think it is? I think it's terrible. No, I think it's horrible. I'm being facetious. Well, who made that up? What man made that up? Of course, a man made it up. But, you know, the idea of like having to be on blood thinners and then have a cesarean get cut open, I thought, oh, well, that doesn't sound like a good plan to be on blood thinners and then they have to wean you off and then they cut you open. As someone who did that, it's not. Yeah, let's not do that. But I have a lot of conversations with my kids about how they came into this world. And I think that I just continue this narrative that families come together in a multitude of different ways. And I love it when my little kidney gardeners come home and they say, you know, Lily has two moms. How cool is that? Yeah. Or Lily has two dads. How cool is that? And so anybody who can put all of those different narratives who can contribute to our society and make us richer with different narratives about how families are. I mean, look at the fertility business. You talk about big tech. And I I was just listening to your conversation with, was it? Ann Wojcicki. Ann Wojcicki with the 23andMe conversation was a fantastic conversation about, you know, what 23andMe is next venture and what they're getting into yeah. in the healthcare space, tech healthcare space. But anyway, science is allowing us to do all sorts of things And the fertility business is booming. It is. There's a lot of tech going on in that area. A lot. A ton of different reasons for people to continue to have babies in different ways because it's only going to help, I think, children feel like they're not alone. You know, anytime I can show my daughter, you know, this person has a family that looks different than whatever the conventional is. I mean, is there even a conventional anymore? There isn't. So anytime we can support the narrative that families look different, we're helping kids feel okay. Well, I think the problem is they think there is a normal. I had a really interesting conversation that's not yet published yet with someone as a conservative person. And they were like, well, real Americans don't like this, you know, don't like this and that or whatever it was. And I said, you know something? I'm a real American. Why do you get to be real Americans? And they're like, well, you've ignored all these people here and here. I said, I don't see them in the Castro coming to see what my life is like. Why do you get the real American designation? It was a great conversation. And they're like, well, I guess that's true. I was like, why do you get to define who and what we are And why do we have to define it at all? And that's what I think is really interesting, is the lack of tolerance, and I hate to say it on all sides, to definitions. And I think, unfortunately, entertainment has done that, although that's changing, and given us an idea of, you know, what we should expect from various people. And we do it as a shorthand. One of my favorite movies, it's a book by Vito Russo called The Celluloid Closet. If you've never seen the documentary, it's narrated by Lily Tomlin. It's about the depictions of gays in entertainment over the years. 
And it's simply propaganda what happened about why we think a gay man is very fey or evil or conniving, why we think lesbians are tragic or trying to grab straight women. It started out as a very benign and pleasant depiction, and then it shifted because of the Hayes Code to something else. I took my mom to that again. And I said, here's why you think what you think, because you've been fed a diet of depictions. One thing that's great about having kids, and you know that, is when they are young, they aren't like that, right? It's what we pour into them that creates those kind of attitudes. And it's super important for them to see all kinds of people and even be unhappy about it, be made unhappy. And we spend a lot of time not being made unhappy in this world because things are coming at us with such speed so that we're confused in a way. And instead of being confused, I think it's really important to make kids uncomfortable so they begin to think harder about their place in the world. I love that. My job actually is not to try to make you happy. My job is to try to explain to you how you could think about this thing in 10 different ways. Right. And you're making a choice to think about this in a way that is making you feel this way. And you can continue to make that choice, but you also have these other options. Right. That is a pet peeve of mine. I have so many friends that are gay and it's like there is more than one type of gay man. Yeah. There is more than one type of gay woman. But I do think that entertainment does the same thing to gay people. They put them in boxes. They used to. Not so much anymore. Yeah, we're working toward that. Um, I still am frustrated with the way that we depict certain stereotypes. I feel like we could be doing more. Particularly women, right? Yes. Like, it's so interesting. I spent some time many years ago you know, how things are communicated has been a big area of study for me in college and everything else, propaganda. And I remember Gina Davis, who was an actress, an Academy Award-winning actress, has moved to talking about depictions in media of women on the screen. And I'll never forget when she said, we were talking for an article about this, and she said, how many women are in the ocean? Um, what's that fish movie? Oh, my God. The cartoon fish movie. Finding Dory. Nemo. Nemo. Finding Nemo. She said, how many women are in the ocean? One, there's one woman in the ocean and she's crazy. It's the Ellen character, right? Mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, there's one woman in the ocean and she's crazy. <laughs> and I didn't want to overthink it, but I was like, it's so true. And then when I was raising boys, I was thinking everything they're hearing has a message to them. And it was really fascinating. And then when you fast forward to the internet, it can be and doubly and triply accelerated in a way that makes it very difficult for anybody, even if you're getting a lot of different inputs. It makes it very easy for people with malevolent ideas to impose on our children and ourselves, actually. Well, it's just so subtle, right? Obviously, having Black children, I notice all of these things. Do people notice that? I mean, the depictions of people of color in Hollywood, not just Hollywood, it's really quite insidious in a way. You know, I've been spending a lot of time watching all this misinformation about critical race theory go around. And you can argue with critical race theory. That's a different thing. But the misinformation about it is what the problem is. The inability to have a debate about it that's cogent is the problem. And I think you're right. There's these depictions. What's fascinating to me, two movies. One was Black Panther when it came out. I was writing about it and the popularity of it. And everyone was like, it's incredible that a lead character who's a person of color has gotten well. I'm like, why? Why is this an outlier when it's just a great movie? And what Netflix and things like that have shown, which has a much more diverse slate. If you look at what's on Netflix, people have appetite for this stuff. You just don't put it out there. When everyone was surprised about Netflix, I'm like, it's because they're programming for everybody else who don't see themselves. 
And by the way, people who are not like that are interested in that too, right? You don't have to be a person of color to be interested in movies that are about people of color. Everybody's interested in everything because you've got this sort of group of people at the top of Hollywood, no longer, by the way, who have been programming in a way that only meets the needs of a very small group of people, and then everyone has to go along for the ride. It's true. And it goes back to sort of our conversation about kids and what they see, right? Even before you're conscious that, you know, you're watching Black Panther, it's just all these subliminal messages or visuals that come in really matter. One thing that I think about when you talk about that is when I was young, my sisters and brothers really helped bring me up. And there was so many gay people around me all the time. Where did you grow up? In Boston. I think we both grew up being raised Catholic. Yes. We could have a whole nother conversation on that. <laughs> but I was always shown as a young person. I remember when I met Patrick Dempsey to do the show, I didn't really know who he was. And everyone said to me, how do you not know who Patrick Dempsey is? You never saw Can't Buy Me Love. What are you talking about? Yeah. And I was like, oh my yeah. goodness, I'm sure he's lovely. I've never seen any of these movies. And it was because I was raised on John Waters movies, right? <laughs> I was watching Female Trouble. I was watching yeah. Divine. I was watching, you know, David Lynch and Blue Velvet oh, wow. and all of these, you know. I was watching Can't Buy Me Love. I love that movie. Really? <laughs> I was watching all of these cult films made by, you know, gay creators. And I had a much, I thought, much more interesting frame of reference as yeah. a child. I wasn't really looking for, oh, my God, I'm going to drop to my knees and drop my panties over the cute yeah. boy. I'm yeah. having empathy for these people yeah. who don't look like anybody else, who don't think right. like anybody else. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, people could consider John Waters in that kind of camp, you know, vulgar or whatever, and that's fine. But you could choose to look at it as just a different form of art. And I think as yeah. a young person, it really expanded my mind to have yeah. an appreciation for drag and all of it, all of the other things, right, yeah. that check the other box. I'm so grateful to have those experiences that I grew up watching so many different types of people and human beings represented. I didn't get railroaded into a specific way of thinking about people because of that. That served me so well in my life. And so I try to do the same thing with my kids and make sure that they see so many different types of people and watch so many different types of movies and cartoons. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine having a baby now? What would you would show the baby? So I'm back to Teletubbies. Right. And classic Sesame Street. That's what I'm back to with my latest bunch of kids. And it works just fine, actually. But I do think a lot having a girl, one of the things that's really lovely, you know, boys, my boys at least, were super confident about their place in the world, you know, and sometimes too much so. I don't know why that is, but they feel safe. They're, you know, wealthy white men in America. They feel safe with loving parents, etc. And I think a lot about raising a girl She's very confident. She's sassy, saucy, all those things. And I literally sit there and think, when is it? When is the moment that she's going to be not that way? Or where's going to be the, the wall she's going to hit? And I watch for it all the time because there is a point with girls where that happens. I know what happened with me and I bang right through it. But it definitely, why don't you play with Barbies? Why don't you do this? Why don't you wear that? And I wonder, it's not going to obviously happen in this parental situation, I'm going to find it very interesting in trying to figure out how to allow her to thrive the way she is and protect her from those influences. At the same time, make her realize that they're there and they, she has to figure out ways to cope with them. It's going to be interesting. My 12-year-old said to me last night, Mom, all the girls in my class apologize so much. Yeah. They're always saying they're sorry for things that they're not even doing. Yeah. And I did a film early in my career with Jake Gyllenhaal 
who's one of the most loveliest people you'll ever meet in your life. Mm -hmm. And my first couple of days on the film, he looked at me and I was really intimidated, right? I didn't even know how I had gotten there. Of course, I had no confidence in myself. And I was on this film. It was my first big studio movie. And I was really, really unsure of my space. And he looked at me one day and he said, Ellen, stop saying you're sorry. You've literally said you're sorry five times in the last hour. And I, I said, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I didn't even notice that I do that. You know, whether it's being raised Catholic in Boston, like, again, whole nother conversation. But I thought it was so remarkable to me that my daughter, out of nowhere, just automatically noticed that. Yeah. And I thought, that is just amazing. Maybe I've said that in passing to her. I don't know. But yeah. she really noticed it. And it goes to, you know, your sons are just confident, right? Biologically, are men more confident? I don't know. It was interesting. We were walking down the street and... You know, one of my sons is 6'3", the other's six feet tall, they're big. And I, you know, when at night when you look around as a woman, you go, oh, even if you're not necessarily in an unsafe situation, you're always aware of your surroundings at night. Mm -hmm. And my son was like, what are you looking at? And I said, oh my God, how nice it must be to walk around in the world and not imagine you could be attacked. Like I've never been attacked, but I think about it, right? I'm little, I'm a woman. And it goes down the line for lots of different people feeling like that. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, like, do you live like that? Everything is sort of a tax on lots of different people as they move through the world. And so one of the things that I'm really excited about is right now my daughter's at two is a badass. She's just a badass. I don't know how else to put it. And I want to keep her as a badass however I can. And I, at the same time, don't want to, like, protect her in a way that she doesn't understand when there's incoming. And so we spend a lot of time thinking about when that moment is going to be. You know, I had a moment with my younger son. He loved the color pink, loved it. He had a spangled hat that was pink. He lived in the gastro. This guy is not gay. He doesn't happen to be. I don't care either way. But when he was four, he wore this hat all the time. It was great. Everyone loved him for it in the gastro, obviously. And he went to school in San Francisco, came back first grade. I'll never forget. I can't wear this hat. I was like, why? He goes, boys don't wear pink. They don't wear spangles. And I was like, what? Of course they do. And then I was trying every which way to get him to like it again. I was like, the whole country of India loves orange and pink. They have celebrations. I was doing anything I could. I was like, how did that happen? How did he get that in his brain? Was it television? Was it incoming? It wasn't on the internet yet at that time because it was too early. I was sort of like perplexed. And then he moved into some very typical man tropes, which, of course, you know, being raised by two lesbians, you'd think you could keep out of that, out of them. Not so. You know, to that point, it must be nice for your sons to be able to walk around, which brings me to the idea of race. And people have no idea yes. what it's like when you're black. You have to think about 100%. other things. And that's why I was saying. It's different people. Yeah. There's this levels to this shit. A good friend of mine's son was in fourth grade and he wore a gold chain to school mm -hmm. and he came home and he said, you know, the teacher said, I can't wear this chain. You can't wear a chain. You can't wear a gold chain to school. You're in fourth grade. You know, I have other friends who happen to go to the same school. Their little white sons wear chains. Yeah. I've never heard of them being told they couldn't wear their chain to school. Right. My son wears a gold chain. It's so funny. He's never been told not. I've told him not to because he's, <laughs> he's a Sopranos fan. So that's what he's doing. Right. I'm like, oh, my God. As stop. we all should be. Are you running for mayor, Kara? No, not right now. You were going to at one point? Yes. San Francisco. Yeah. I think I have more impact doing journalism and opinion journalism, especially. I have more impact interviewing people. Things change. Like we did an interview with the Barler CEO. It got that company in a lot of trouble because of what they were behaving and they've changed. 
So I think we can create more change and awareness. I think a lot of my work has raised a lot of awareness of the dangers of social media in a responsible way and made legislators pay attention to it. I spend a lot of time talking to legislators about this stuff. I just feel like at this moment, it's much more effective to do what I'm doing. But I think it's important for all of us to think about our civic responsibilities. I think too much we sit around and harangue politicians. Now, I don't like every politician, but it's too easy to fall into the trope of insulting them and then doing nothing, right? So to me, if you're going to complain about a city or I don't like homelessness, I don't like this, then get in there and do something about it at this point. Because otherwise, just sit down and shut up, right? Can I ask you a question about Hollywood? How do you feel as an actor? I've been interviewing a lot of actors and studio heads and spent some time with David Zaslov and I did a Jason Kylar interview and I talked to Sasha Baron Cohen, a whole bunch of people. What is it like right now in Hollywood when you're thinking about streamers and the power is changing really dramatically and the economics are shifting so significantly right now? What is that like as an actor when you're thinking about it? So here's what I think. You speak so much about this. I love these conversations. I'm lucky because I'm in television. So, you know, Hollywood is like high school, basically. And it's very rare that you can cross over. Well, certainly before. I mean, the kids have it a little bit better now and different where, you know, they can do... You would never have Kate Winslet, who's the loveliest human on the planet. She would never do a limited series before or television now. And now you have someone like a Kate Winslet doing a limited series because she's going after the material, right? Yeah. So for certain people, they're able to find a really happy medium because normally now TV is cool again. I think that for people who are willing to accept that TV can be an incredible medium, I think women like Kate Winslet have done an incredible job of staying relevant continuing to do good work. And their ego isn't bruised. They lead with the work first. It's not like, oh, well, I'm Kate Winslet, so I could never be on a limited series. I could never be on a streaming platform on TV because I'm a movie star. You know, someone like her who's so innately healthy in her mind doesn't bump up against that very thing. But I think that traditional movie stars are really going to continue to struggle. Yeah. And I know you've had conversations with these theater owners and the future of theater and what theaters will look like. And I agree with you. I do think that the movie experience and the theater going experience is never going to be the same. Not at all. Why would it be? And the technology with home screens, home sound, we know during the pandemic, people are buying bigger homes, investing more in their home space. Right. Why would you go to a movie theater? So it's just content. It's not differentiated content, right? It's more affecting actors. You know, movie stars are going to have a harder time because they're just not making as many movies. What about being entrepreneurial and creating, like in Reese Witherspoon's situation, for example? And again, these numbers are not the numbers they are. Right, right. Nonetheless, they reflect an entrepreneurial bent by actors. And, you know, you think of LeBron James, they're doing commerce, they're doing podcasts, they're doing events and stuff like that. And it's not unlike stuff I do as a reporter. I have a big event. I've got podcasts, got print, stuff like that. Is there more of an entrepreneurial thing going on in Hollywood among people or not? I think there's more of an entrepreneurial thing going on in Hollywood with women, not with men. Yeah. I think men have always been allowed to Maybe not in the same startup kind of a way. Yeah. You know, typically movie stars used to have endorsements, right? You have watch campaigns or coffee campaigns or things like that. And actresses typically have always had fashion campaigns, right? Where you can only wear a Dior dress and Dior pays you. And I definitely think that females in Hollywood have definitely woken up to the fact that you don't get paid as much as men. So how can we make up that deficit? 
And, you know, Jessica Alba was one of the first ones to do it with The Honest Company. And now people have followed suit. I definitely still think it's harder, but at least women now see examples of it being done. You know, we do have to do these. I think famously, Scarlett Johansson, who's, you know, in a very public battle with Disney right now about the residuals. But absolutely, these big, giant companies need to understand if you're not going to have a theater release, just say We know this streaming is coming down the pike. We know that you have this model. We know we're not going to use that model because we have to release it on home video. So let's sit down and let's talk about what's going to make you happy. We want to release this movie and we want everyone to see it. So what's going to make you happy? It's really not complicated. At the same time, it's shifting so dramatically. What Netflix has started is really... You know, the creative your show is on Netflix, right? It's doing deals. Yes. Years ago, I interviewed George Lucas, and I said, someday you're going to release a movie. You're going to have it paid for by yourself because you're going to sell it in advance, and you're going to release it streaming. This was way before streaming. I said, you're going to broadcast it to people's homes via the internet. You're going to do some theaters that you like the best, where it looks beautiful. I said, you're going to send people physical copies, but it's all going to be up to you, and you're going to cut out the Hollywood in between the studios, because what do you need those fuckers for? I remember saying it just like that. And he's like, what do I need those fuckers for? I said, you don't. He happened to have a production facility. And I said, everyone in Hollywood who is entrepreneurial is going to do really well in this new environment because the gatekeepers are gone everywhere. Anywhere it is, they're gone. And so the question is, what can you make out of that? You know, especially in entertainment, because you have this audience now that you can reach anywhere in the world and it's global versus just this small amount of people. And I've always thought that the people who run Hollywood have kept all of you in fear and insecurity for so long. And when you begin to look out to the wider world, you see your opportunities are enormous. Not for everybody, but for a lot of people. Same thing in journalism with Substack. I broke away from a lot of the big, even though I work for the New York Times, I'm not their employee. But it's really an interesting time for all kinds of creatives to think hard about how they want to build their lives and their businesses. And that's the good part of technology, right? That is the great part of tech. And it's true. When you're a part of something so huge and so profitable, there really is an interest in keeping you on that thing yeah. that's so huge and so profitable and not necessarily supporting. And giving you the lesser things. Like I was talking to a big creator and he was asking me about why the Instagram guy, Kevin Systrom, and his partner made so much money. I said, well, they owned it. Actually, it was a little too little money even though it was $1.5 billion, that was little compared to what it was going to be worth. Instagram and it now is worth 50 times that. And I said, because he owned it, he made it and he owned it. Just like you, you make things, but you don't own them anymore. You own a piece of them, a residual or whatever. I said, so what you really are is a high paid employee. He got so angry at me. And I was sitting next to a Google guy and the Google guy was like, yeah, you're a high paid employee. You're not an owner. And it was a really interesting discussion with him because I said, you take the plane that they send for you, you take the giant thing of flowers they send you for getting an Emmy nomination. When you could own the plane, you don't need to have someone to send you flowers. And you have to stop thinking in this employee mindset in the new information age. And it was a really interesting discussion. It drove him crazy. I think I blew his mind in a weird way. There's less and less of a need for the middleman, for sure, or middlewoman, for sure, these days. You know, I guess it's a personal choice. Do you want to run a company? I think a lot of these companies get so big 
Did you watch Halston? No, I haven't yet. I have to. Oh, it's so fantastic. All of their performances are so amazing. And even in the 70s, when it was happening primarily to garment companies, you know, you would sell your name, right? Yeah. And then you don't really own your name anymore. No, exactly. I have a friend who was a model and worked for Halston. And he said, you know, the one thing that it didn't portray was what a nice guy Halston was. They don't really portray that side of him, but it does make me think of that where he sold his name. Right. He didn't really have to run the day-to-day. He liked that at first. He was like, I can just be creative. I can just think about dresses. I don't have to think about all these other things. But then eventually it got to a point where he didn't even own himself. And that ended up being his demise and what ate away at him the most. See, I just don't think you can be successful going forward without being entrepreneurial and owning owning your own creativity. It's a very interesting time for that. I mean, it will still exist, but it's going to be very hard not to be super successful without understanding, taking away those lessons of Silicon Valley, which is ownership of your own IP. I hate to say it that way, but ownership of your own thought processes. Yeah, I think there's some sort of component to it too, where in any career, Mm -hmm. if you're a startup tech person, you want to be in tech so bad, right? And you get a job at Google or Apple and you're so excited. Then, okay, you're there five years. People are telling you what to do. It's really cool. And then just the natural evolution of any job is, okay, I've been doing it for so long. I'm tired of people knocking on my door telling me when I can eat lunch, when I can come to set. There's a part of just the natural evolution of being in a job so long. We just Mm -hmm. simply want to have different experiences and do different things. Yeah, I bet. So I think that that's not lost on me. Yeah. Kara Swisher, I just adore you. Thank you. And I adore the way you're using your mind and your platform. You are definitely a gift. Thank you. And I encourage everybody to listen to everything you do. Oh, okay. I make a lot of stuff. Certainly. It's just the way in which, you know, you move. The way you get down, your swag is subtle and cool. Thank you. And I'm happy that you're alive and on this planet and doing what you're doing and that you've chosen to do what you do. And I appreciate your time. I know you're so busy. This was great. Thank you so much. That was great. It was really fun. 